今聞いてるのはアンクルイードのポッドキャストみんなブリブリで楽しんでいきましょフェリック・ニッチ
believe it was, said, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Fuck that is all I got to say to that. Whatever doesn't kill you just wipes you the fuck out. In my case, anyway. It just makes you tired. And it puts you in a position where you think about all those times stuck in bed, the amount of time I've spent in bed. And I'm a guy who enjoys his leisure time and enjoys a nap and so on. But there's no rest. There's no replenishment or rejuvenation. It's just exhaustion. And it's pain. But I'm here. And four and a half years into this fucking illness, it, ha it hasn't killed me. And life... You know, I get it. We all have crazy times with life when just like the wheels fall off, right? The wheels have fallen off. In this four and a half year span, I've lost both my parents, my dad from cancer. I held his hand at 3.30 in the morning as he drifted into whatever realm comes next. To me personally, I just believe it's the ground. There was no angels, no trumpets. A man who just told, had just told us on Christmas died just around Valentine's Day, the cancer went from a guy who looked like my dad to a little shriveled, yellowed man. This was a guy who'd made all the quote-unquote smart choices. He jogged. He didn't smoke or booze or do those things. And there he was, dead. And then, and I'll get to the story maybe a little bit later, I was in India, and I got the worst call that my beloved mom had uh, died suddenly. I was talking on the phone to my brother one evening and the line went dead. For me, I just thought, oh, the battery went dead. I'll call her in a couple days. But my brother was smart enough to know that sensed cosmically. Oh, shit. I let the smoke out already. Sorry, Mom. There we go. Uh, so there I was rushing back to my little cabin, throwing my stuff together. Take a rollicking four-hour taxi ride to the roads of India where, you know, you always hear about sacred cows, and it's a figure of speech, right? But the fucking cows just lay on the road. It's like, cow, could you lay on one lane? Could you not block two and a half lanes? The buses are coming straight at you. Oh, I could, uh, people pissing on the side of the road. And bless those dear folks in India with whatever you want to bless. There's plenty of gods you can bless them with in India, it turns out. But it threw me into the, a terrible situation. Flights and all the logistics and showing up in frozen cold Utah where my dear mom lived in a terrible little conservative town. And I don't hate many places. And I traipse and ramble all over the world. But this little town, while I have a significant and loathsome dislike for this place. And ended up there in nothing but my little rags that I had from India, living on a commune and in an Ayurvedic clinic. I didn't ever think I was going to, well, you know, I had no plans for coming back. I knew at some point I would go somewhere else, right? Because there's the logistics of visas and whatnot. It's terrible. But my mom did donate her body to medical research, not just her organs, but the whole corpus, as it were. And for, uh, so my brothers and I said goodbye to her in a medical school clinic with tile and stainless steel rather than the fake flowers and the comb over funeral director. I was awful proud of her. And I lost my last grandparent and my dear buddy Rod. So all I, all I can think to do from all this is make art out of it, document their stories. So that's why I'm telling you this. And I've written letters and poems and songs. 
to these dear departed and whatnot. So the short version of that is there's been a lot of changes in my life, right? And with this illness, my erstwhile career job situation, which I quite enjoy because I got to be a big shot. I got to go around the places and make talks in front of the various people and uh, inspire folks and um, that vanished. My love, well, I'm, not, I'm just going to say that. I'm just going to scratch that topic right there. So anyway, uh, Dig, um, with all of this, I decided I could either pack it in and, you know, I started, my life became one of prescription medications because that's what the doctors told me I was supposed to do. Um, and I've never been one for dependencies, right? You know, like, I, obviously, I love my herb. And uh, occasional craft beer. and But I was never one for things beyond that so much. But the doctor said, well, you got to take this and that and this and that. Benzodiazepines and SSRIs and opiates and anti-spasm medi medications and nerve medications. And I turned into a fucking zombie, man. Like, I lost my ability to form a sentence, continue a thought. I had the same conversations over and over again. And I felt myself slipping into that abyss where all you want is to maintain that level of chemistry that your body becomes accustomed to. But somehow in me, I had the fortitude to taper off all that stuff, quit it all, which is an absolutely horrible experience, which I wouldn't have survived aside from some dear friends in the little small town of Pacifica, California, who uh, gave me safe haven to bounce off the walls. Miserable experience. No support from the doctors. Thank goodness for CBDs and Rick Simpson oil which helped me down from that perilous cliff. But uh, now here I am in a country, uh, as my home country of Canada, as you likely know, and many of the states in which I have spent time, Washington, Oregon, California, Nevada, my little circuit. You can just pop by the shop and buy your cannabis in whatever form you choose, but here I am. Because uh, you know, no matter where you are in Canada, it's rain and it's cold and it's rather expensive and these days I need somewhere warm and cheap and weird. So I found myself in many of these warm and weird and cheap places. So anyway, I was saying, I got to the point where I could either just live in, in, a, in a flat, live in an apartment somewhere, catching up on documentaries and reruns and just becoming a hermit watching the days and months go by, doctor's appointments, and would say, oh, geez, oh, yeah. Well, you know, this illness is 95% women. Thanks, doc. Would you like, anyway. Um, and listening to well-intentioned friends offered me advice about, have you tried yoga? Are you vegan? And yeah, I did every kind of psychiatrist and cognitive behavioral therapy and all kinds of this bullshit. The other thing that really helped me, though, was Microdosing on psilocybin and mosquito, mosquito uh, mushroom. And that kind of got my brain firing again. And one night, at a friend's house after uh, some psychedelic exploration, and uh, somehow at 2 or 3 in the morning, I started purchasing plane tickets to foreign lands. I woke up the next day around noon, as one does, and realized what I'd done. And I looked and go, ah. Damn, 
I did a fine job of this. And a few days later, I was off to Thailand. So I figured, you know, rather than wasting away the months and years, you know, old Neil Young said you can burn out or, uh, burn out or fade away. I'm not sure the fuck wasn't going to fade away. So I headed off to Thailand and spent some time in a little anonymous town there. You know, Thailand's filled with, like, party towns and tourist towns and towns of expats and old dudes with young Thai wives and uh, <coughs> massage. And so on. But I found a little anonymous town, just a workaday town, not in any guidebooks. Heaven help you. If you look at those Lonely Planet books, you'll end up just traipsing around following drunk Australians. <laughs> I also did end up in Australia, but that's another story. Um, getting Thai massage, where they bend you and twist you and, and dig their elbows into you and press you around. It's like doing yoga, except without having to do any of the work yourself, so it works out great for me. And then they would uh, pound me with these, these hot herbal bags uh, of, well, hot herbal bags, and pound the shit out of me with those, and then stick me in a steam sauna with like uh, this herbal steam. And, you know, it's already 40 degrees, over 100 degrees outside, and they stick you in the sun. It's even hotter, and you just sweat. And it started to clean me out, right? So then I headed off to India, which I alluded to earlier, and ended up in an Ayurvedic clinic. Now, Ayurveda is the ancient Sanskrit, as it were, uh, medical tradition of India and other environs. And I spent three weeks inpatient in this little clinic, this sweet uh, lady doctor and her husband who would go off to work every day, and the lady doctor would tend to me, and uh, I would walk 12 steps to where I'd take my meals. And, uh, and I, I just wanted to drink tea and have a smoke, but none of, you know, they'd give me, ration me one little cup of tea, no smoking. And then I'd go into this wooden table, and this little short mustachioed man would do all sorts of strange treatments with medicated oils dripping on my head and rubbing me down and all these pressure points. It was all very strange. And I was lying there on this wooden table, cur carved, curved table. I said, you know, this looks, and it had drainage holes. And I was like, wow, this looks like it would be an autopsy table. So I asked the doctor, and I said, well, yes, of course. We just did an autopsy here just three weeks ago. Pardon my... I'll stop the accent, save everyone the embarrassment. And while I was there, they also withdrew all the currency. The five, well, not all of it, the 500,000 rupee notes, which would be like in the U.S. or Canada, and saying, okay, no more fives, tens, or twenties. And then finally, they released a new bill, a 2,000 rupee note. And in India, that, you know, in Canada, that's like 38 bucks, right? But in, in India, that's like walking around with just nothing but $100 bills and trying to get change for that shit. It's like rolling into a coffee shop and ordering a... Nespresso and paying with a $100 bill. They just don't want to make change. Anyway, it made it for a real interesting time. So after the clinic, I ended up at this uh, intentional community that's been there since the late 60s called Oroville. And it's kind of homesteading, right? Like, you go there and you say what you can contribute to the community. I have skills in making spirulina or making pottery or whatever. And you kind of homestead in this place. Now, it has kind of a mixed reputation because a lot of people went there and as often happens in mixed communities and communes, there's people who take advantage of the situation. There's allegations of all sorts of and sexual innuendos and, uh, you know, the, uh, the vagaries of colonial post-colonialism, we'll say, where there's many Westerners that go there to live, but there's a lot of Indians that are hired to do the real work, building the little dirt roads and, 
and so on. But it was an interesting experience nevertheless. And then I had to split back to Utah for the reasons I mentioned earlier about my poor mom. And I was stuck there in Utah for a little while, tending to all that, and then down to Nevada. And for a guy with my illness, Nevada, Las Vegas area is a tough place to be because you can't just go for a little stroll and find a quiet coffee shop to post up in and scribble in your scrapbooks and journals, as I like to do. Yeah, there's a lot going on there, man. And trucks and guns and chaos. And I don't need to tell you that uh, the U.S. is have, having some interesting times of their own right now. So I split back to... Uh, started to start the cycle circuit again, finish up where I left off, because in India I didn't get to do these train trips I wanted to do. Long story short, I didn't, get an, I didn't get an India visa, but I ended up in Thailand. I took trains from Chiang Mai down to Hat Yai, from the top to the bottom. Still didn't end up at a beach or a, a party town, uh, which is fine. And then through Malaysia, again by train. Like, you know, I roll it slow these days, right? And I love riding on trains. And then I ended up in Nepal, and Nepal was a childhood dream. When I was a little dude, I'd put up the canvas tent in the backyard and read books all about the various ascents of the Himalayan mountains. I'm now convinced that most of the, the, the mountains don't want to be climbed. And it's a disrespect to the mountains, but also to the local people who live in improv impoverished situations and to earn money for their family, they kind of become obliged. And you can say, oh, well, people are bringing money to the community, but they're obliged to haul shit up the mountain, and there's trash everywhere all over the mountains, oxygen cylinders and dead bodies and, and shit, literally shit. Um, but I ended up in a town called Pokhara in western Nepal near the uh, Annapurna Massif, and it was a delightful experience. I spent another several weeks there in an Ayurvedic clinic and uh, quite fell in love with the folks there. Met a great rock and roll band who kept an eye out for me, went to see Nepate, who was their first outdoor concert in some years. You know, in Nepal, they've had um, a lot of political insurrection there. Their entire royal family was murdered. There was a Maoist insurrection, things taken over by warlords. The only way you could get around through the back areas was paying uh, tolls, bribes, privilege uh, to various regional warlords. And then they had an earthquake that was in the Western news for about two days, but no celebrities jumped on the bandwagon, and so they were just stuck mopping up their country. But I was able, uh, you know, I realized in my condition I wasn't able to fulfill the childhood dream of going on epic three-week treks around the massifs and rambling through the mountain valleys, but what I could do is hire a jeep and a driver to get me up real close and rambled up to a wonderful little town called Gondruk and spent some time uh, living simple there, right? And, uh, you know, there was other Westerners around there who would, uh, oh, we got to get up early. We got 20 miles to do tomorrow. And I'm like, why are you going there? This is a great little village. And so during the day, the villages would just empty. And it was a wonderful, peaceful stillness. And I would see the folks rebuilding their homes, building homes with a hammer, uh, a string to make a plumb line, the hammer to chisel, to, to break up pieces of slate rock, plumb line, and then a saw to cut the lintels across the doors. Those are the only three tools you need to build a house. Downside is they're not very good for uh, earthquake, uh, in earthquakes. Those houses come tumbling down pretty easy. Then I uh, ended up um, after a rollicking flight, Kathmandu, uh, staying in the old uh, hippie quarter, 
quote-unquote hippie quarter, Tamel, with all the markets and chaos and whatnots there. And then to uh, United Arab Emirates, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, that area. And, uh, and all of a sudden, you're going into like future world, Tomorrowland. Buildings are big, and everything's air-conditioned. There's a mall with an indoor ski hill. My buddy there said, you want to go there? I'm like, I'm fucking Canada, man. I don't need to see any snow. I heard there's some hot springs out in the desert. So again, <laughs> it's very hot. It's a desert, right? It's a hot place. Ended up at some hot springs, watching the uh, shakes play with their falcons. And uh, then I hopped on a, on a ship. Now, I always had a notion to go on a, on a freighter. And, you know, some of these freighters that tramp around the world have staterooms on them still. And um, that wasn't really possible because you need medical clearance to do that. And, well, I'm not capable of that anymore. So I got on a repositioning cruise. And uh, I was uh, significantly younger than most of the passengers. I'm awkward. I'm in that sort of vague middle age situation in my life. But I made friends with the staff and, and the crew and, and had a very amusing time especially as we had to take on extra security, highly trained security through the pirates, uh, heavily pirated areas around uh, the Strait of Hormuz and so on. I visited Oman and I rolled into Aqaba, Jordan, the top of the Red Sea in full Arab robes and headscarf, smoking shisha and drinking coffee with the local folks there. Yeah, I figured I'd either get shanked or have a great time and well, here I am, right? and uh, met some ar young archaeologists and who uh, appreciated my dedication to trying to chameleon my chameleon-like assimilation to their culture due to my finery and uh, got some behind the scenes tours of ruins and got to retrace the steps of Lawrence of Arabia and list read the books of Wilfred Tezinger. Oh, there's the power just came back on. Oh, suddenly so bright, I guess blow out that candle. And then through the uh, Suez Canal uh, into the Mediterranean, so from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean, through the Suez, learn all about the history there. And, you know, Egypt was another interest of mine as a young kid. In fourth grade, I did a, a science fair exhibit, as one does, about King Tut, and went into the elementary school in a loincloth and a, and a fashioned uh, King Tut crown with a scale model, scale-ish, model of King Tut's tomb in the Valley of the Kings. So I, was, I didn't get to go to the Valley of the Kings, but I came, I was close, and I was there, and I was doing it, and I figured out a way to still get around the world without expending much energy, because I don't got the energy to spend, right? I move slow. So uh, then it was Greece, and I got some terrible news there where my buddy, I mentioned earlier, had, had died and kind of broke my heart, and so in the shadow of the Parthenon, I wrote poems to him, some of which have now been made into songs that you can hear on another channel. I'll mention later. And then, uh, then to uh, Rome, where I tromped around the Colosseum listening to the band or Jerry Garcia band or Bob Dylan himself singing Bob Dylan's song, Desolation Row. Oh, the streets of Rome are filled with rubble, ancient footsteps are everywhere. Uh, and then uh, to Turkey. And Turkey was another good place for my, uh, both for my head, because I wanted to see, you know, the, on, on the, the news you hear about all the conflict and all the chaos in these places in the world, and uh, I wanted to go see it for myself. And Turkey was, uh, 
you know, it's right there in between Europe and Asia. That's no secret. And the Bosphorus going right through there. And I cruised the Bosphorus and examining, you know, what it is that keeps people, brings people together rather than tears them apart. Of course, I bought another hat there, a fez, and sat on the stone steps with my fez and, uh, and a ridiculous mustache to blend in. <laughs> Unsuccessfully. Oh, shit. Smoke's falling out of the ashtray there. Can't burn this table. It's not mine. Um, yeah. So then, uh, back to Canada, and I said, well, you know, maybe now's the time. I need to get a home. And in my home city of Vancouver, it's tremendously expensive to live there. So I said, well, I should go see the rest of Canada. I've been all over the world. What's the rest of Canada got? So I went to Montreal and Quebec City, Halifax, St. John's, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, Truro, and then to Moncton, New Brunswick. Just spending a couple weeks in each town, living like a local, you know, going to the coffee shops and the post office and the cafes, scoring a little herb here and there, going to see some music, taking public transit, just seeing what it would be like to live there. Even looked at some houses. And there's some lovely places, and I especially like Moncton, New Brunswick. So, you know, like I have this equation in my head. How long does it take from getting to a place before I have uh, a beer and a joint a uh, beer or a coffee or both, and a, and a joint. And there, man, it was like 20 minutes. You can buy a house there for a very thrifty price. But when it comes down to it, there's lots of places I want to see, and I felt like I would turn into a hermit in these places. Plus, dot, 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 winter. Everywhere in Canada has winter. And me and winter, well, we just don't roll together no more. So uh, then I, uh, in Ontario, I met up with my buddies from a rock and roll band, and we uh, circuited around uh, Ontario playing some gigs. Uh, me, not playing, but hanging out. I made a custom set list for them on old hotel stationery and uh, did some live streams and just lived that rock and roll lifestyle. Um, and by rock and roll lifestyle, I wasn't out uh, carousing and partying till late night because I'm not rated for that, but I sure like the music, right? Um, so then I got to a point where it was like, I ended up back in Utah and Nevada. And I'm, I hope you're staying with me here while I ramble this out. And it's uh, uh, crossroads in life, you know. Parents gone, love gone. Um, uh, point of acceptance with this illness that is never going to go away. Uh, after all the research and whatnots I did. So... I hopped on another ship. I took a literal slow boat to China, from California to Hong Kong, 30 days at sea, with various stops in my beloved Japan. Now, you may know that back in the early 90s, I spent a couple years in Japan uh, working as a mushroom farmer, but then later I hitchhiked around and ended up in little remote villages up in the mountains that had been hitherto mostly unoccupied since after World War II. And it was there that I learned the... Uh, more or less hidden history of cannabis in Japan. I wrote extensive essays. If you've been following along with my projects for the last bunch of years, you certainly know this. Published in Cannabis Can Culture, uh, as they switch from Cannabis uh, Canada, and uh, Heads Magazine, and Journal of International Hemp Association, and Hemp Horizons book, and Hemp for Victory book, and all this kind of stuff. But going back to Japan, I finally got to like go to like the big cities and see the... Other, some other parts of it, and, and not be experiencing as a, a hitchhiking homeless wanderer, which is sort of my natural state, but 
<laughs> these days it's not quite as easy as all that for me, right? So from there it was Shanghai, Hong Kong, and then Sri Lanka. And in Sri Lanka, uh, not only did I get to f check my boxes of warm, weird, and cheap, but I spent another couple weeks in Ayurvedic clinic and some more treatment. Um, first in, in kind of an Ayurvedic spa type setting where they had a pool and pleasantly furnished rooms. But then later, and more effectively really, in a government-run, by-donation, traditional hospital where they'd throw me down on a piece of plywood covered with vinyl, other people hacking and wheezing around me, doing their treatments. You know, with Ayurveda, it's all about cleaning the body out. And <laughs> let's just say they do it in every way possible. And I would uh, get oiled down and, and uh, treated with various potions and uh, <laughs> leave there in my sarong in a tuk-tuk, little three-wheeled rig, uh, slick, slickered up with oil. Anyway, I spent some time there, but uh, shit, you know, happened there. It just wasn't the right place for me, and some situations changed in my personal life, let's say, that uh, ended me up uh, to where I'm at now. So I'm wandering, and I'm wondering, and I'm still alive is the point of telling you all that. I'm seeking natural treatments of all kinds. I'm experimenting liberally with ways to feel better, to get some sleep from time to time, and have rejiggered life to where I can still be that wandering uh, nomad poet that I've always sort of was my purpose in life. So... tell you one story about Jamaica, the last time I was there. Now, Jamaica, everyone assumes because Jamaica is associated with reggae music and Rastafarianism and Bob Marley and Peter Tosh, Bunny Whaler, King Tubby, Jimmy Cliff, uh, many of whom sing odes and ballads to the grandeur of ganja. That ganja is legal there, and it's not. Um, like many places, the U.S. encouraged uh, war on drugs, which somehow ridiculously includes cannabis, uh, has, has gone into uh, a period of illegality there. And, you know, Jamaica's got some problems. And again, these are many of which can be attributed to the disgrace of, of slavery and the vagaries of colonialism and the fight for independence and all that. That throws communities and cultures into chaos. And so there's a lot of problem with uh, guns and cocaine and things like that there, and violence that comes along with that. But in Westmoreland Parish, in the southwest corner of Jamaica, is really the, the ganja heartland. And uh, it might be like the Mendocino, Humboldt, Trinity County of California, the equivalent there in Jamaica. Not everywhere in Jamaica is fertile for growing ganja, but there it certainly is. Jamaica is mostly a giant coral upcrop, up and so the coral, not only is it filled with minerals, it provides great drainage, two things that ganja loves, and of course there's plenty of sunshine, unlike my native Canada. So you can be growing all year round. And so I uh, found my way up to some remote hills, oh, speaking of ganja, dropping that there, um, and got to see all kinds of neat ganja gardens. But then one day, as things started to change in the U.S., things started to change in Jamaica. And 
A lot of this was led by the Maroons. Now, the Maroons are the descendants of the runaway slaves who would revolt, sneak away, and then live up in the hills and created their own culture and society up in the mountains using traditional medicines, which I partook of liberally in uh, Jamaica. And I'll mention some, a video about that later. Note to self. And uh, so Westmoreland Parish was uh, undertaking a legalization uh, effort. And they were decriminalizing it and working towards legalization in this, in this uh, province, as it were. And uh, one day there was a news conference, a village called Orange Hill, which is very beating aorta of the heart of the ganja land. So I went up to this press conference, and to set the scene, there was the news media there with their uh, TV cameras and whatnot, and there was a variety of um, well-educated Jamaican bureaucrat types in their suits and ties, and there was the uh, Yardies, which are the longtime foreigners. You know, there's a lot of uh, Westerners, you know, mostly American East Coasters who have kind of dropped out and just living in Jamaica for uh, years, decades. And they all catch up, and they all sort of know each other, and so they're all hanging out in one little area. And then there's the uh, a group of Rastas sitting on a picnic table, and I'm wearing my uh, hemp leaf, hemp shirt, as one does at such an occasion. And uh, pardon me, I'm just opening a soda water here. So I've just figured I should go post up and sit down with these fellows. I had a joint behind each ear, and I sat down, and they're all speaking their patois and wondering who this uh, Irish is sitting down with them. And I spark up my fatty and, and uh, join in their conversation a little bit and sit through the press conferences. Folks give speeches, and fellows there from High Times announcing that they're going to do a cannabis cup there in the grill. And... Uh, And quite enjoyed the cultural experience of being there to witness history. I'm a big believer in bearing witness to history. Uh, yeah, sometimes it's not your story, and that definitely wasn't my story to tell. But being there to participate and, be and witness that and be able to go out and tell the world what I had seen is tremendously important to me. I learned this in my days standing at logging blockades on Vancouver Island and, uh, and nuclear tests in Nevada. It's just bearing witness. There's something powerful about that. Anyway, I go back to my little compound where I was staying, and uh, they all call me Weedy, Weedy there because everyone in Jamaica has a nickname, and Weedy was, well, intuitively mine. And they said, oh, man, now you're the King Weedy. And there's the big rolling papers, the big jumbo rolling papers, the Lion Pride. Inside they say King Weedy on them. And so it's like, oh, man, what did I do to deserve that? And the opening shot of the TV news that night as folks turned on the evening news across Jamaica. The establishing shot of the newscast was me, <laughs> your old uncle here, sitting on the picnic table with the Rastas, smoking his joint, and joining in the conversation. So there it was, bearing witness and showing uh, my mug to the good people of Jamaica and giving them a flavor of what's to come. So I was very proud to be part of that story. And that was kind of how my Jamaica story ended uh, in a roundabout way for, for what it's worth. Um, oh, shit. Pardon me.
One other thing I'll mention that I did during all this haze, just after I came off all the medications, I, uh, as I was hitting rock bottom there in California, the dear old Grateful Dead, and uh, for those of you who, well, let's just say you're familiar with them, it was like the, the traveling circus, the traveling counterculture circus. Uh, you know, the hippies and the bikers and the weirdos and the street kids and the, the grinders and the gutter punks would follow along this band and participate as, the audi as, as an audience member, participate in bearing witness to this improvisational music that the Grateful Dead would play. They announced that the remaining four core members, uh, joined by Trey from Fish on guitar and uh, Jeff on keyboards, Chuimente, and uh, some other dudes, were going to embark on a little uh, mini tour, five shows in uh, the Bay Area, and then in Chicago to kind of say goodbye and move on with their lives. There's more to this story, but uh, one of my brothers and I, we decided to road trip this, as one does. Not on my old Volkswagen bus, which is another story I should tell you about my old Volkswagen bus, which is now a psychedelic sauna uh, at, a, at some ski cabins in Utah. Manji Moose, great place to stay if you're a skier. I can hook you up with the connections for that. You can go hotbox my old VW bus, which has been hotboxed many times over the years, I tell you. But we did this trip just like it was the early 90s again. No technology, no internet. I took a scrapbook, and I took an old film camera made out of a sardine ca can covered with cork, and uh, did it, did it like, like we used to back in the olden days. That was a good healing experience for me documented my way. I did do a little bit of uh, digital recording of some, some music and just some sounds from the Grateful Dead parking lot just to remind me on those difficult days I could put on my headphones and drift, let my mind drift back to being in that parking lot and reminding myself of the healing that I've done to get to this point. Uh, I'm going to have to find another smoke here. Please bear with me while I do that.
All right. So here I am now starting to put myself back out into the world. I've rebuilt myself as much as I'm going to get rebuilt, maybe. Who knows? The future is unwritten. But I've got a couple things that I'm working on for you. Uh, those of you who have stuck <laughs> with me and are hearing the sound of my voice are receiving this transmission through your wireless set. I've gone through, I've been digging through the archives and going through the back catalogs and all those forgotten hard drives, trying to, you know, because I kind of lost myself through all of this and I couldn't really remember what it is that I do and what made me me. It's kind of a strange experience, but I went through a real de-identification, they call it, uh, process, where I had to kind of look at these things and listen to these things I'd created to remember who I was and what it is that I do. And now that I remember those things, I've got a couple things in the works for you. The first is the final show from my Jamaica series. And this one's a little different than the others because it's... Uh, I go up with a buddy up to his ganja garden. He explains what I was telling you earlier about the coral and the bat guano and his history with growing ganja and how he learned about growing everything from his parents and learned about traditional medicines and so on. And uh, I also have some videos with this dude um, where he's making me the traditional roots brews and taking all kinds of natural herbs and boiling them on his little one-pot fire. And uh, hmm, I think you'll really enjoy that. But I made a show with him talking specifically about his ganja-grown techniques. And it's pretty much ready to go. So I'm going to put that out to you real soon for your amusement and edification. And the next one is um, some old audio recorded on a cassette tape from AM radio one night during a power outage on the island of Guam in probably about 1995. And Guam's been in the news quite a bit recently on account of oh, there's a big U.S. military base there, several bases. It's an island about 30 miles by 11 miles, about, you know, 50 by 20 kilometers in size. And it's the biggest island in that whole region, right? And I spent a few years there. And while I was there, I was, I was doing my activism, doing my work to help educate folks about the wonders of the cannabis plant both for its industrial purposes and for medical purposes, let alone recreational use. Because all use is really medical, isn't it? Uh, recreational? Mm. Anyway, I'll save that riff for another time. But I was making hemp bags and, uh, and other things. And I was on the radio one night on a show called Deep Cuts with Kelly Crane. And she plays some music and asked me questions about hemp. I'm going to warn you that the audio is a little rough. Uh, it's been equalized and levelated because, you know, it comes from AM radio to cassette that then sat in a box for years uh, in various storage sheds and getting moved around the world and then digitized and whatnot. But I got that kind of out for you because I want you to understand the importance of these little islands. And, you know, Guam came into possession of the U.S. as a throw-in, as a settlement after the Spanish-American War, something that really we don't know much about, right? You know, like we don't learn about that shit. Along with the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and a few other places. And they vote in the U.S. for a congressperson, a representative of the United States Congress, but that congressperson is not given the right to vote. And that's baffling to me. You know, this is colonialism all over again, that folks uh, have taxation without representation. Where's the revolution? 
But I've also recently uh, become in contact again with some old pals from Guam who I used to scuba dive and toke with, and and uh, and I want to tell their share their story just a uh, just a little bit. So that's that's coming up as well. After Guam, I, I traipsed around the islands of Palau and Yap, and eventually I'll tell you those stories. I'm just reminding myself by saying this. Palau is, of all the countries I've visited, and there's been a few, uh, Palau is sort of the, the holy Eden that I keep in the back of my mind. As uh, when I was on Guam, whenever I get really good weed, uh, get good, great herb, it was the Palauan. And, but then I learned that Palau was like 300 islands and it spread over a vast territory. But I traipsed around Palau by uh, these little sort of ferries. Uh, they were hauling drums of diesel around and by little float planes and whatnot. There's huge battles there in World War II, and you see these little tiny specks of land. You know, went up to the top of Bloody Nose Ridge where thousands of people lost their lives in a matter of a few days. And now there's wonderful ganja. It all comes pre-rolled. You buy it in a cigarette box because, uh, you know, the folks there are like, well, people buy cigarettes rolled in a box. Why don't we do that with ganja? And for a guy that's all thumbs, because I'm just going to tell you I'm a lousy roller, it was, I found that quite charming and, and, and convenient, and uh, not to mention delicious. I'm sure I'll let this go out again. I know the power's back on. The ceiling fans are going. There we go. So I got that story coming up. And then, again, if you've been listening to my spiels of different kinds over the years, you've heard me talk about a lady called Bev Davies. Now, Bev Davies, when I was a little punk rocker in Vancouver, she was an older lady. And now it sounds funny to say that, just simply because she was older than me. But she was always there taking these miraculous black and white photos of every punk gig you can see. And if you're a fan of the band DOA, and if you're not, you should be. Uh, they were the, had a seminal album called Hardcore 81. And they really brought punk and politics into one uh, delicious sandwich. You've likely seen her photos, but she's photographed uh, uh, a mighty roster of counterculture punk bands over the years. And so I go with her through a story from traveling west with Neil Young to photographing... uh, metal bands like Motorhead and all the punk bands. And she also talks about really what's the difference between being an artist and being a photographer and what art means to, to her. And, but her stories are exceptional. And I'm very fond of this uh, dear uh, punk rock granny. And she's still there going to shows. She's a huge fan of Brian Jonestown Massacre. And she's there treated like punk rock royalty, sitting on the side of the stage, taking photos of the DOA shows and and whatnot. So I have a long interview with her coming up. And then uh, I also in the hard drive, in the archive, I found a show that I made for a different channel uh, back when I was making all these different pods for different reasons about uh, an interview with a filmmaker who'd made a film called Hori Smoku Sailor Jerry. And... Uh, I'm not a tattooed dude because in Japan you can't go into the hot springs if you have tattoos, but, you know, respect for the fine tattoo artists of the world. And Sailor Jerry was the guy who kind of combined the Polynesian technique, including the tapa-tapa bamboo traditional technique, uh, with the Japanese styles 
and but with American themes. And he popularized this in Hawaii during World War II. And if you've seen any of this kind of classic tattoo work, so much of it is inspired or done by Sailor Jerry uh, himself. So this dude made a film about that, and now the film's available on YouTube and whatnots. So I'm going to dig out that interview and repurpose it for your, uh, for your ears and see what you think. Consider it a bonus, right? It's not the normal uh, chugal routine, but what the fuck is the normal chugal routine, right? Uh, speaking of films, uh, Hempen Road. In 1996, I filmed a documentary traveling around the Cascadia area of North America, Vancouver, Olympia, Victoria, Eugene, Portland, Seattle, uh, talking to cannabis entrepreneurs, for the most part making uh, industrial hemp products, you know, into food, into cloth, uh, oil, beer, paper, and also uh, spoke with the wonderful and recently departed activist and author of Proposition 215 and Proposition P in San Francisco, Prop 215 in California, and before that Proposition P in San Francisco, were the f which were really the first pieces of legislation, ballot initiatives, that started the dominoes falling to this re-legalization situation that we're seeing uh, spreading around North America. So that film has now been digitized and is available on, uh, on the internets, and I'll, uh, you know, I'll put some links um, to this stuff. You're pretty smart. I think you can find it. But if you go to Davo's story, D-A-V-E-O story.com, you'll find all of these things, uh, including the links directly. And you can watch this film. It's 83 minutes long. And, you know, I'm going to tell you, it was filmed in a real mixed media style and edited on Adobe Premiere 1.0. So if any of you know about digital editing stuff, it was in its very primitive conditions. Shit, I let it go out again. And we edited this film, shot it on Super 8, 16-millimeter film, high 8 video, scans, uh, videos pulled from the web on RealPlayer, which was a thing at the time, and edited them all together onto a 9-gig hard drive, which cost $6,000 at the time, on an overclocked 200-megahertz Mac, for you technology enthusiasts there, out there, um, and released this on video cassette, VHS, I took it on a tour, showed it to activists and other activists and entrepreneurs, and features all kinds of scientists and experts speaking at the Commercial Industrial Hemp Symposium in Vancouver. And I think it's important to watch because it documents the story of these people who did a lot of the legwork to bring this legalization about. And I get a little frustrated now because uh, there's all these suits and former cops and prosecutors, especially in Canada, who are jumping on the bandwagon. You know, Canada's scheduled to legalize nationwide on July, sometime in July. And certainly we see the legalization in Colorado, Washington, Oregon, Alaska, California, and my home province of British Columbia uh, is de facto legal and has been for some time where there's myriad dispensaries from which folks can purchase uh, healthy cannabis, you know, and, and there's a lot of debate right now about the licensed producers versus the small-scale growers, and is there room for the small-scale growers in the thing, and people say, oh, it needs to be tested. These other folks say, well, we're growing it organic. There's a lot of people who are growing it sun-grown, greenhouse sun-grown, which I'm a huge proponent of. You know, 
there's wonderful technology with hydroponics and, and artificial lighting to grow cannabis. But a lot of the reason for that was because it was an illegal crop and you had to grow in basements and, and hidden warehouses and so on. And, and lights were your only way to do that. But now, uh, with the light shining on legalization, the sunlight is, turns out, turns out sunlight is great for growing cannabis, right? And uh, that comes up in the Jamaica episode as well. But in Canada, uh, folks are growing with sun. And so I, I get a little frustrated about all these suits jumping in and not really caring about the folks who did the work to get, to get us to the situation we're in now. So this film, Hemp and Road, kind of, well, it doesn't kind of, it does document many of the stories of folks who uh, either went to jail lost their shirt, ran up credit cards to make these businesses, going to every rally and every event, writing legislation, writing guidebooks. Uh, myself, I worked on, I, 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 with my uh, buddy Hemp Ed, who you likely recall hearing uh, on past episodes, created the Practical Guide to Cannabis, a guide for policymakers. And a lot of these folks who did a lot of the legwork, they won't see any of the money from this legalization, which... You know, if you're into this for the money and not for reasons of, of general decency and community standards and support and, uh, dare I say, moral reasons, you're probably in it for the wrong reasons. But I think these people at least deserve to be recognized and admired and acknowledged, and I can only do that by sharing their story. So I encourage you to take a look at that uh, film. I think you'll really enjoy it. There's lots of weird little fun bits in it, too, like a lot of experimental stuff. The fellow I made the film with, uh, A.G., he's also passed away now, and somewhere in some shoebox somewhere um, is all the original footage from that, and I will likely never see that, but we shot hundreds of hours, as one does when making a documentary, and 83 minutes of it ended up in this film. But in that 83 minutes, there's some weird parades and run-around sand dunes and bicycles and snowboards and all kinds of just weird fun stuff. I like to think of them as smoke breaks when we were making the film. Uh, but uh, dig into that, won't you? So as I'm clearing out the, my personal back catalog, I've also been making uh, a bunch of episodes for a series I do called Postcards from Gravelly Beach. And this is more poetry focused, poetry and literature, to which our movement, as it is, owes a lot of, uh, a lot of due. I'm talking about uh, the, the beat writers specifically, uh, Car Jack Kerouac, Gary Snyder, uh, Allen Ginsberg. These were guys who were using cannabis, uh, and they kind of came at it from the uh, African-American jazz musicians. Uh, it was kind of their connective tissue that introduced them to the, the wonders of the herb. And they were sort of the vanguard that told the world about mm, being free and cannabis was a part of the lifestyle, and cannabis was something that you used to enhance your creativity and connect yourself to the natural world, as well as uh, maybe some kind of personal spirituality. So in Postcards from Gravelly Beach, I read from a lot of my heroes, the Beats, uh, as well as Charles Bukowski and James Joyce and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and a lot of my own original writings. There's a little bit of jazz music in there, and original music I, I record of different friends' bands, and folks I meet along the road. And I think you'll really enjoy that if you're a little bit literary and intellectually minded. Again, I'll put links and stuff like that. Um, a couple other notes. All the old Chugalons, 
and there's well over 100 of them now, are now, thanks to the help of some mysterious elves, have been moved up to archive.org and are now live again. Uh, for a while they were dead, you know, when I was in my fog, domains didn't get re-registered and, and websites went down and files went missing and that kind of thing. But all of them, all the back catalog is now available again. So thanks to the folks who helped me out with that. And you can now go back to 2005 when I started making these little things and listen uh, through this whole journey that we've done together over all those, all those years. You know, as I've gone through this tough time, I always knew uh, that you folks were out there and that I, I gave me a little purpose to pull myself out of this fog because I've got stories to tell and I've lived, um, I've lived a life, you know, we always think about the history in which we exist and I've always been someone who wanted to document things ever since I was a little dude. I always wanted to document and share these stories. I wanted to be someone who just went to foreign countries and gathered stories and shared them with the world. And these Chugalons tell the story uh, in a rather fun way, I think, amusing at least, of the progress we've made as a community as an and as a society. And really, these are a lifestyle. You know, um, I really dislike a lot of this, um, uh, how do I put not too fine of a point on it, the, uh, the, the, the uh, celebration of celebrity. Oh, this uh, rapper tokes up, or this celebrity tokes up, so that means it's interesting and cool, and folks who view cannabis as something that you uh, use and sit on a couch and play video games, or it's all about how much you can consume, and this celebration of laziness or edification of excess, and that's not really what I've ever been about. Uh, but I do like using cannabis as a way to spark creative work and to go out into the world. You know, uh, Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead used to sing, to sing uh, Eyes of the World. Wake now, discover that you are the eyes of the world. And when they sing that, I say, yeah, you know, I should go out into the world and gather stories and document them to tell folks like you. So now you can go back and listen to all of those. But with all of that in mind, um, what I'm saying is I'm, I'm appreciative that you folks are out there and that you're putting on your headphones and your speakers and you're having this uh, little sit-down story time with me. I remember receiving an email years ago from someone who's now long since graduated from this situation, but he said that uh, he goes to a, a private Christian college, and I don't really give a shit what religion you are. I'm a strict indifferentialist about that. But uh, he said that the little Trugalons were the only thing that really kept him going through those difficult times when he was surrounded by dogma and instructions and rules and people telling him how he had to live. And he would go into his dorm at night and put on his headphones and uh, imagine probably spark went up from time to time, blowed out through a toilet paper tube stuffed with dryer sheets before the wonder of vaporizers. Oh, wow. To think that was only a few years ago. Uh, so when I'm making these shows, I think of dudes like that, and I think of the folks who have sent me mixes and sent me music over the years, and I think of the, the pleasant notes. And so I will ask you, I've mentioned a few links and a few projects, but I'll also ask you, uh, let me know that 
let, let me know that you're out there. Let me know what, you, what you're up to. You can find me real easy. I'm Uncle Weed everywhere on the social internet, on the Facebooks, on the Twitter, and uh, Instagram, and all these, these things. I'm putting content out on, on YouTube and content stories. I'm putting stories out on all these different channels. And I, I, I do very much appreciate hearing back from you and you expressing your opinion and what's inspiring you and what's turning you on and how you use cannabis and how it enhances your life and the struggles and challenges you've had in your life and how you've pushed through it. Uh, I'm laden with empathy and encouragement. If you need a fan for your projects, I humbly volunteer to be your fan. So I have a lot more to say about this stuff, especially the state of legalization, and, and maybe I'll hook up with my old pal Dope Fiend in the UK to share some more of these stories in the months to come. But in the short term, I have these shows that I mentioned coming out for you. And I've also recently gone back to the mustache. Yes, it's a huge, ridiculous mustache. and I'm, I have quite a good time with it. So that's all. Jamaica, Guam, foreign countries, Arabia, legalization, hemp and road, Grateful Dead, and a giant mustache. Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. I've got something in my eye, can't get it out. Over if I am the Holy Ghost, and you know just what that means. I got you, and you got me.